0: on this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. J. Todd Billings about his new book The End of the Christian Life. So we cover topics like is death a friend or an enemy? How can we really live as dying creatures? How does modern medicine influence our thoughts about death? How can we really hope in the end as mortals and much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we're a podcast that hopes to develop thinking, but we don't want to just think in general. We don't want to um, think without realizing that thinking requires particular virtues to do it well, at least in... Uh, the Christian life. So we have endeavored to create a culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, all while we think. And we wanted, I mean, I think Brandon and I were just talking with our our guest today, Dr. Todd Billings, about how the podcast really started. And And it reminds me that part of the reason we started it was just because we thought, we're Baptists and there's not a lot of Baptists who think, but as we started doing it, we realized there is a segment of Baptists who do want to think, but it seems that it's not always in the appropriate mode of thinking. It seems that it's more aggressive and, um, the meaning sometimes. So we've wanted to create almost a counterculture of one that is encouraging thinking, but doing it in a, in a happy tone. So in that vein, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to our guest, Dr. Todd Billings, uh, First, before he introduces himself, I want to commend his book that we're going to talk about, The End of the Christian Life, uh, subtitled How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live. And it's it's an affordable book. I'll put it in the notes that you guys can go get it. I think it's it's simply fantastic. It's um, it's easy to read. It's packed full of good stuff. I mean, I was underlining almost every, every sentence as I read it. Uh, I think it is desperately needed. Um, particularly, I think, once you encounter either you, yourself, or you have family members who are encountering the prospect of death, I think it becomes all the more relevant and all the more I- important um, to realize and to think through these questions. I mean, I think of myself, my mother-in-law has cancer, and facing the, facing those ty- these types of questions, I think this book is just utterly relevant and so, so useful and helpful. So, Before I give everything away, Dr. Billings, number one, thank you for joining us. Number two, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Uh, Because I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with you. And then what is it that got you interested in the book in particular?
2: Thank you, Jordan. And it's good to be with you and Brandon and the listeners. I really commend what you're doing on this podcast. I was mentioning before we started that Timothy George has been a long time friend, and really, even though I'm not Baptist myself, a model of how one can embrace the larger Christian tradition and um, deep confessional thinking um, as a Baptist, and I, I just really commend what you're doing. So I'm a professor of Reformed Theology in Holland, Michigan at Western Theological Seminary, and Um, I've been here for, I did my MDiv at Fuller and then my doctoral work at Harvard, Um, spent a few years doing um, missionary work in East Africa, and have written on a number of topics, some of them in historical theology, um, especially in the Reformation, Calvin, the Doctrine of Union with Christ, and then some more contemporary works in terms of contemporary theology. And as I do theology, I definitely see myself as working within the broader kind of little C Catholic tradition. One thing I learned a lot about in my doctoral work was just how much Calvin, for example, learned from the Church Fathers and he was willing to criticize them where he felt like they went astray from Scripture but he just drank deeply from them. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's certainly a part of my approach and my method, as I have written on um, The Word of God for the People of God is one of my books on theological hermeneutics, and it's largely about how to approach the Bible as Christian scripture rather than just history or sort of an answer book for our contemporary questions. But the book through which the triune God encounters us and has communion with us and leads us in this path of salvation in Christ. And I've also written a a couple of books related to something that took place in 2012, which was I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. So that was not expected at all. I was 39. My wife and I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home. This is not what we had planned for the future. But after that diagnosis, as I was processing it, I I kind of put one book project on the shelf and wrote a book about lament called Rejoicing in Lament and really tried to make tie my own cancer story into the story of God, um, the much larger, tr- more dramatic, more important story of God in Christ, but also how lament is an act of worship and praise. And um, this most recent book um, certainly was influenced by the fact that I'm a cancer patient. Um, it's on mortality in the Christian life. but it's a different kind of angle than rejoicing and lament. It's not, rejoicing and lament is kind of part memoir, you might say, and part theological inquiry. I mean, it gets really nerdy at points. I have a chapter on divine impassibility, um, but there's definitely some parts that are kind of memoir-esque. And this one really emerged from a couple things happening at once. One was having a lot of, Pastors like you, Brandon, coming back to me as a former seminary professor saying, Wow, what am I supposed to do in congregations when there is so much death and dying? Especially some of the students who had come straight from college and then to seminary, some of them had maybe been to one or two funerals. (laughs) And then they're presiding over 10 to 12 funerals a year. They're getting questions of, should we take grandpa off life support? All of these end-of-life questions that they didn't really feel prepared for, even though we talked about them in seminary, it's different to actually be there. And so I applied for and worked with a grant from the Louisville Institute just to explore this more with some pastors. So we had some four colloquies exploring what are the issues that are coming up in death and dying um, in congregations and why do they seem so disorienting (laughs) for pastors and congregations. And I I learned a lot uh, through that, talking to medical professionals, theologians, um, learning about the history of of death and dying in, in the United States, and also some of the history of that in the Christian tradition. After those colloquies, I ended up writing a different kind of book than I had expected. I had thought I was going to write a book just about the end of life and how the church can approach the end of life. And I certainly deal with some of those issues in this book, but I realized that one of the one of the issues is that the church itself and it's preaching the gospel often doesn't talk much about death as a reality <laughs> um, and doesn't reflect much upon our lives as mortal lives. And so I found that it doesn't really make sense to give one story of what the good news is to everybody until you, like, the doctor says you go into hospice, and then we start giving them a different story the good news six months before they die. Um, we really have to rethink what does the scripture say to us? about our mortal condition, um, especially because there are so many modern elements of our culture which are death-denying, which kind of make us think that mortality is something that applies to other people. So, the book I ended up writing with The End of the Christian Life is really about how embracing our mortality is key for discipleship for everyone, as parents, as you know, we raise our children, as for people in all different age groups— and just exploring some of this mystery and some of the depths of what Scripture has to say to us um, um, as mortal creatures in a culture that, as I as I mentioned, is largely in denial about it much of the time.
1: Doctor Billings, I just want to echo um, what Jordan said about the book. Um, I, I read a lot, and and I, I'll, I'll finish books sometimes, and I'll think, you know, I. I learned a lot in this book, or that book was really interesting. But and and those things were true of this book. But when I got to the end of this book, my my thought was that this book was good for me. It was it was good for my soul in a way. So I really do just want to thank you uh, for writing the book, um, and I do recommend it uh, for all the listeners. Um, I've recommended it to a couple of people um, that I know personally um, already. So I just want to thank you. Um, for writing it before we get into the, the content. But with that in mind, um, let's begin with a concept that you unpack early on in the book, and that is of uh, Sheol, um, this Old Testament concept. Um, also, you refer to it as the pit. So um, most of us, when we think of Sheol, we think of the place of the dead. But you you say early on in the book that there's, in the Israelite mind, there's a little bit more going on. So if you don't mind, unpack that for us and tell us what you're getting at here uh, in this early chapter.
2: Yeah, I think some of what led me to explore this in the Psalms and in various parts of the Old Testament was thinking, even as a cancer patient, about life and the way in which sometimes, at least when cancer patients get together, we kind of have a little competition and nobody says that we're going to have a competition. But as soon as we start sharing, when were you diagnosed? When did you get treatment? Um, whoever got treatment longer ago, they're the ones who win, right? So you you, you share, especially if you have the same cancer, um, that it's like a game. And the, those who live the longest win. <laughs> and it's easy in a medicalized culture for all of us to think like that. It's not like cancer patients are bad people. That's why we think like that. This is how our culture trains us to, to, to think. But in, when I was um, researching some of the way in which resurrection hope is, is foreshadowed and anticipated in the Old Testament, I found, especially the writings of a, of a um, Jewish scholar at Harvard, um, John Levinson, so helpful with this and he points out how life in the old testament is not just about the number of heartbeats you have life is very much defined by god the god of israel is life where the god of israel is present is in life and um First and foremost, that's in the temple. And so creation itself was created like a temple, um, a dwelling place for God. And then the temple itself, um, if you look at the Old Testament law and regulations, um, some of those regulations look really strange to us. But some of the reason is, is there's no sign of death in the temple. And so God is the God of, of life. And I think I had just assumed as I had read the Old Testament before, you know, somebody in some Old Testament class had said, oh, well, you know, Old Testament didn't really have much of an idea of the afterlife. Um, And so um, whenever they talk about Sheol or the pit, and uh, increasingly modern translations will just leave it Sheol um, and and not translate it because it's hard to Translate, but it's usually you know translated the, the, the pit, the deep miry pit, and psalmists will be crying out from the pit, oh Lord, you know why have you left me in the pit? Or pray, um, do not take away my life um, that I would slip into the pit. Um, but uh, the, some of the t- some of the notion that is referred to there is one that would have been familiar to. Other cultures in that area, which is kind of an idea of the underworld, or you know, it's a place where people go um, um, when they die. But and so sometimes, just in passing, the psalmist will use "shall" um, in in that way, which is understandable. You know, it's it's a cultural idea that would have already had some valence. It's not really developed very much. But then you have these things that are really puzzling, um, if that's what Sheol is, and that is people who are living who are crying out from the pit. And my favorite example of this, which is paralleled in the Psalms, but it's actually in Jonah, when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he says, it's Sheol, and he's crying out from the belly uh, of the fish as uh, crying out from Sheol. He's obviously alive, but it's like he's in death. Um, and he says, bring me to your holy temple. He doesn't just ask to live. He he wants to go to what Levinson has pointed out is the opposite of the pit, Sheol, a place of abandonment, a place of darkness. The opposite of that is God, the God of life, the presence of God. Um, the temple and so i think the implications for this i found were just very powerful where rather than thinking of our lives as a contest of who gets to live the longest <laughs> the 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 orienting way for the old testament with this is are you seeking the god of life that's where god that's where life is are you in the temple, or are you in a place of alienation and abandonment, um, alienation from God? And it becomes even more powerful than when, in light of the New Testament, we know that um, you know even in Sheol, Christ has been there with us, and we have even the Psalm says, you know, even even into the pit, I am with you. But in a very real way, when Christ takes on Um, Human suffering and um, is shamed and by by people and in Gethsemane and on the cross, Um, he has been to Sheol. We have solidarity with us, and yet Christ is the temple in His person. (laughs) It's you know John one, the word has tabernacled among us, has templed among us. He is the coming together of heaven and earth. And then in the new creation that we look forward to, what is the image? Um, On the one hand, Revelation says there will be no temple. But the reason there is no temple is because the whole creation will be a temple. It will be purified, a purified temple. It will be the whole creation um, after the judgment and cleansing of God will be the dwelling place for God, um, the, the presence of, of God and creation together. And so um, I think it just clarifies how living a Christian life is about seeking the temple, seeking the kingdom. It's not about how long you live. It's, that's not abundant life. Um, it's a total reorientation of our categories. I,
0: I wanted to have you tease out a little bit. Um, in chapter two, you talk about two views of mortality. And I think this is pretty relevant because it does seem that, depending on who you talk to, there's very different understanding of death, whether it's an enemy or a friend. So can you talk to me about what these two views are and how we should think about death?
2: Well, I think that the one that I was most familiar with is one that has scriptural support. Uh, both of them, as I articulate them, have scriptural support, but in it in little in, in different in different ways. And it's the Augustinian view that death is an enemy, that death is fundamentally unnatural. And in some ways it fits with what I was just noting a few minutes ago, that there was no death in the garden. God didn't you know God created creation to be a d- His dwelling place, and there's no death in the temple. And so there's something about death that Augustine ins- insists is is fundamentally an anomaly, <laughs> unnatural even. And Augustine's goes so far as to say it's it's irrational in the sense that we can't figure out. A reason why God would allow <laughs> this death, this tearing apart, he says, of of body and soul. And um, of course, that fits with um, the Apostle Paul um, and that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Um, I think one really important thing to keep in mind with the Apostle Paul, um, when especially when he talks about the sting of death and, oh, death, whereas there's where is your sting? I would say most of the time that I have heard that quoted um, at funerals and otherwise, uh, it's not recognized that that's a future tense in terms of um, Paul saying, when the day of the Lord comes, when all things are set right, then we will be able to say, O oh death, where is thy sting? Um, Until then, it has a sting. I mean, it doesn't have the ultimate sting. (laughs) It doesn't have the ultimate power. But it's, I think, not really helpful for Christians to act as if there isn't a profound loss and sting um, to death um, right now. And that's not at all to downplay the hope of what is to come. But it's... uh, it's part of accepting who we are as, as creatures and that we are not God. And in the meantime, death, death has this sting. There's this other aspect, though, that it took me quite a while to, to pick up on. And I think that one of the reasons it took me a while to pick up on is because I had heard secular views of death where it's like Freddie the Leaf. Do you know the Freddie the Leaf book? Um, where there's Freddie the Leaf, and he falls during the fall, and it's all just part of this wonderful natural process, and you know, trying to teach children that dying is just a completely natural thing, and 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 so forth. And there's something about that just kind of turns my stomach a little bit. <laughs> um, there's just, I, I think, uh, at least having. Had close encounters with people who have died, like my six-year-old neighbor, who who died of cancer. I'm I'm not going to show up to his funeral and read Freddie the Leaf. That is just not right. And um, even if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't be reading Freddie the Leaf around his parents. Like it actually doesn't get at the reality of death. Um, But there is something. Um, about the process of dying. Even if death itself um, is not a gift, the process of dying can be a kind of gift and and, and a kind of release in a sense that death um, um, provides given the hope that we have in Christ. And it was really from... Um, some elderly saints who um, taught me this, and they there was about 40 of them who read through my book on lament, and um, they really enjoyed it. They read the book aloud to each other each week in their small groups. I don't think everybody could read still. so um, But one of their biggest questions was, why do you speak so much of death as an enemy? We're looking forward to death. And I realized that there is there are scripture passages about you know the patriarchs, for example, dying old and full of years, a kind of arc of the human life that has a completion to it. there's a sense in which um, you know someone who is eighty and then the end of that arc they don't need to try to pretend that they're twenty years old or want to be twenty years old. they're losing some of their bodily capacities. And I think the great theologian of this I found is Irenaeus in the second century, which interestingly was the time of a lot of martyrdoms. But he talks about how, in a sense, this very process of having one thing after another, like even like having your mobility taken away and it's, it's a process of giving yourself back over to Christ, giving yourself back over to the creation, It's I, sorry, to the Creator. Um, it can be a process that God actually uses to bring maturity and fullness, Irenaeus says, um, and I would say even witness. In the Christian life, I gave a number of examples in the book where, right before, as people are dying, they bear witness to Christ in incredibly powerful ways. And I think those are examples that, that do fit with this sense that um, um, even the process of dying can be taken into God's purposes and plans and there's a certain sense in which dying and um death as a part of that process in the spirit's work can be a friend even though i'm you know if i struggle a little bit on how to title that chapter um because i don't want to just say flatly you know i don't want a freddy is the leaf uh, freddy the leaf type of friendship with death
1: yeah i wonder if you'll you'll take a few moments to talk to us about um, processing death uh, in the modern world. So um, I think as moderns, we have some unique um, obstacles to overcome in our thinking about death. So I guess there's two different pieces of this that I'd, I'd like to get you to speak to. One is the, the modern medicine piece where we can at least we think we can prolong death and, um, seemingly endlessly until it catches up with us. But then there's also um, the uh, how fewer and fewer people die at home um, surrounded by their loved ones. Um, much more people die uh, in, in institutions um, now. And so there's this separation, it seems, of, of family units when it comes to the time of, of death. So if you speak to both of those things and help us process how to think through death, As folks living in the modern world,
2: yeah, yeah, I think those are really crucial factors that we often just don't realize how different earlier cultures were, and how many different cultures around the world have a very different relationship with death. And when we think of that, we often think, "Oh, end of life, what what happens there?" So even with what you said, Brandon, of of you know death taking place at home. Um, when I first mentioned that to people, they're like, "Oh, yeah. Would I rather die in the hospital or die at home?" They think it's a question about end of life, and it is, but it's also a question about cultural formation. So, in you know, in 1940, United States, most deaths took place in the home, in the living room. Um, In fact, where I am in Michigan, there are a number of houses that still have, especially prominent in the 19th century, but um, kind of like a parlor type area that the living room and a place for having guests for the dying is the same kind of space. And so that's not just important for the person who's dying, it's deeply formative for everybody else. So children are were exposed to death. A lot of children would have had the experience of basically being like a modern, a contemporary hospice worker as um, a grandparent or a parent or um, a brother or sister as mortality rates in all sorts of ways were higher. Um, for younger people. Um, That would have been part of growing up. And now we're in a situation where death, you know, the vast, vast majority of deaths take place in institutions. And that's not just important for the people who are dying, but for our children and for us. And, you know, it's not unusual at all for me to have a seminary student in their 20s who's never been to a funeral, who's never been present even with a dead body. And the thing is that shapes us. And it's something I started to think about very seriously with my own kids with because of my own cancer diagnosis, I didn't want their first encounter with death to be my own. And so we were very intentional, um, in getting to know some people, um, especially my kids and I getting to know folks in the nursing home who wanted some companions and we walked with them through some of the dying process. And I brought my kids and pulled my kids out of school to go to their funeral. And some of the, Some other people are like, what? What are are you doing? (laughs) Um, As if death is something that we shouldn't expose kids to. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about, you know, showing a seven-year-old a rated R movie or something like that. That's actually very different. What I'm talking about is, um, like, in a sense, we have exposure to death all the time, but it's through these... Glamorous headlines and entertainment, which subtly reinforces to us that death is something that happens somewhere else. When it's not part of our everyday experience in our flesh and blood that we observe, then we develop a very different relationship with with death. And so, do you think
0: that? Do you think that makes it all the more difficult? for people who are encountering death to be able to understand it and handle it? Because it seems like if we've taken it away from our daily life, and it's not part of our culture, right? um, It becomes all the more confusing when it does come for you. And I don't know how that plays into it. I guess maybe it's just the importance of having this book now is given our current context, we need to be able to have a different type of culture that encounters death,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's the prayer of the psalmist. Um, Lord, help me to number my days. Help me to realize how short my lifespan is in relation to you and your eternity. And the thing is that prayer is both more, all the more urgent and harder for us to, to pray um, now. You know, Jordan, I in what I've observed um, sometimes that's definitely true for the person who's dying in terms of it's a very disorienting thing because they haven't been exposed but I would say it's also extremely common for the family members of that person so um, and this is this is some of even how it gets into um, the challenges in modern medicine now let me say first I have several family members who are doctors I I am in favor of modern medicine if it's a question of, you know, yes or no. <laughs> um, it can be a gift. Um, but some of what I try to argue in the book is that it's, it can be a, a wonderful gift, um, but it's a tyrannical master. Um, because there are always more options. There are always more that you can do. Whereas in earlier ages, there was just times when the doctor said, this is all we can do. What happens at that point? Well, there was a whole Christian tradition for what happens at that point. You call together the family. You call together the congregation. There's times of confession. There's times of praising God and prayer. And and the pastor is there and commends this person and their body to God. But a lot of Christians have basically replaced the pastor with... Um, the doctor or the or even the machine that's keeping them going that doesn't have potential even to sort of get them independently in in, anymore. And so um, I, in situation after situation, now, I, I have looked at a lot of the empirical sociological data, and I don't have sociological data on this particular point, I'll admit, Jordan. But I have seen so many times where a family member is absolutely unwilling for a person like to go into hospice, which means that you stop receiving kind of rescue-type care and just admit that you're in the process of dying. It's often the family members who are against that more than the person themselves who's dying. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's there's consequences, not just for ourself individually as a dying person, but there's consequences for um, th- the fact that, um, yeah, I, I hear from my doctor, family members and friends all the time too of... Grandma in their nineties, whose body is just beaten down and weary, and her daughter, you know, just insists on her to keep having the most intensive treatments, even if it's like a lottery ticket's chance of making any difference. <laughs> and yeah. so we have a really somehow we've gotten into a really disordered relationship um, to to death and dying. S- something that you mentioned in here um, that as a pastor. Um, is
1: something that I care about particularly is is um, how the prosperity gospel is um, kind of infiltrating oh, yeah. our thoughts. Um, so on page 131 in the book, you say, um, as strange as it seems, a version of Jim Baker's health and wealth gospel has become an underlying assumption for many Christians today. It comes to the surface when they face illness or tragedy, but it was present all along animating their vision as they pursued a life of flourishing. And then later on, you know, you talk about different statistics and how um, Christians understand the promises of God. Help us think about, um, well, first of all, um, why do you think the the prosperity gospel has infiltrated, this kind of thinking has infiltrated churches that would um, otherwise totally eschew uh, prosperity gospel thinking formally? You know, we don't, we don't believe mm-hmm. that. But, it, right. but it's still, it's there. Um, it's there in our thinking. And 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 then maybe nail down for us a, the better way to understand the promises of God, not in this health and, and wealth uh, prosperity way, but in the, the biblical way.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. When I first took up this project, I didn't expect to have a chapter on the prosperity gospel, but it was through both observation in the cancer community with um, friends and churches and seeing how people respond. And then also some of the sociological data that was really puzzling to sociologists um, that pointed to theological issues that made me just realize, okay, this is something we've really got to address. What I saw happening, and then what a lot of the sociological data points to as well, is that on the one hand, for example, cancer patients who have a terminal form of cancer, they're more religious than the general population, um, both in their beliefs, in their practices. Um, They pray more. um, They... uh, Like, there is a kind of religious awakening that that takes place, but unfortunately, and at times, this awakening is, in a sense, that it's very much focused on, I want health right now and here and now, and that that's basically... The promise and the ultimate um, promise of God, some of the studies that sociologists, and these are just secular sociologists, had found so puzzling is um, they did studies on these cancer patients with terminal illnesses um, and which ones would choose extreme measures. And by extreme measures, it's really kind of an extreme category in the sense that These do not have a chance of bringing the person back to full health. Um, They have, Atul Gawande is a physician who describes it as basically a lottery ticket's chance of making any difference. Um, Overall, they don't extend people's lifespan. Um, But there's always one more thing you can try, right? Right. Um, they do separate you from your family members in your final weeks and months of life generally because they uh, usually have very severe side effects, so you can't be you know communicating and so forth. But in study after study, um, highly religious Christians are much more likely, in one of them I cite, um, three times as likely to ask for extreme measures than people who aren't religious, like atheists and agnostics and things like that. And and when I first read that, I was like, whoa, what is going on? Like, why are we so scared, afraid of death? But the sociologists found that the reasons given for this weren't even usually medical reasons. They were, I want to give, I want to give God a chance to do a miracle. Um, I want, Um, basically sort of things in the sense that like God's promise is actually for me to have life extension, to have more here and now. And I noticed that with my dear friends who had medical blogs and I would read through the comments when they would be in severe medical problems, you know, situations about prayers, and I remember once I did a search and over a 100 comments, and, you know, there was not a single one about our hope for the age to come, not a single one about heaven. Um, they were all about, you know, we're praying for healing right here, right now. And this is, again, this is not a prosperity gospel person. Um, and so, how I end up framing it is, on the one hand, I'm not against praying for healing. <laughs> we should pray for healing, um, but in an open-handed way. And I connect it, actually, with praying for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. We should pray for healing, but healing's temporary. Healing can be great, but it's in the larger picture of things, it's not that big a deal. the The bigger, bolder prayer... Is the prayer for to share in resurrection and the age to come where God makes all things new and all things right in Jesus Christ, this big, big cosmic visit, vision? I mean, you know, the moment that Lazarus was raised from the dead, he started dying again. This is not resurrection hope, and I think that I, I, I've been really troubled to see some churches even calling it resurrection if if it looks like somebody's dead and then comes back to life. That's not resurrection hope. Resurrection is in a new body that shares in Christ that doesn't decay, that is in full fellowship and communion with God. It's so much more glorious, Right? And so, th- that was some of the sadness I felt. That, on the one hand, um, with the prosperity gospel, it really doesn't fit with the teaching of Scripture, especially with the teaching of Paul and the thorn of the flesh and how God's power is made perfect in our weakness. I mean, we serve, we serve a crucified and risen Lord, not somebody who Jesus didn't live till he was eighty and get to see grandkids and things like that. Why do we think we deserve that? Like, if that comes, yeah, it's a gift, but we've never been promised that. But what have we been promised? We've been promised that the triune God of the universe is with us and that not even death can separate us from from his love and that we'll actually be sharing in reigning with Christ and in the victory in the new creation. I mean, that is something to get excited about. Um, But we've gotten really fixated um, on sort of praying for healing now and assuming that's what God wants. And um, I, you know, as I look even at the history of, I've become very interested in the history of prayers for the sick, Um, the Christian tradition has always Included some prayer for healing, but it's it's really kind of a peculiar modern thing, I think, to just fixate on that. You pray for other things, too. The person themselves yeah. is a witness. You pray for their hope. You, you're not praying as if they're never going to die. They are going to die, whether now or later, right? There's deeper things to be praying for. So sorry if I kind of on a tangent, but it's something I'm passionate about.
0: No, that's helpful. And I think, you a related note, I, I do want to know what your thoughts are as far as like advice goes for whether it's pastors or whether it's just an average church member. I mean, everyone deals with the prospect of death at some point um, and even just serious sickness or illness of any type. How How do we counsel and, and console and encourage brothers and sisters who are going through this i mean i think my own experience i, I haven't had experience with death like personally I, but i did have uh three repetitive surgeries two of them failed and it, it was really demoralizing it was over a two year period and it was painful it was i I, re- I couldn't sit down for two years hmm. i had to stand okay. or lay down and it was just it, it was really brutal but uh, the comments that people would make would i know how you're feeling and to me at that time was like that's not what i want to hear no, so no, what no. kind of advice would you give? Well, you
2: could read the book, um, <laughs> but, um, no, there are, there's definitely practical things, but there's just, um, on multiple different levels. Um, I think that on a congregational level, one really important thing is to just, whether it's death, dying or illness, To try to connect the body as much as possible with other parts of the body. So, yes, pastor, visit your parishioners in the hospital, but try to, both for the sake of the person in the hospital, but also for the sake of the people who are healthy, they need to be around the ill people. (laughs) They actually need that. They're not being formed. In fullness, unless they're exposed to people who are ill and dying and and so forth, so we actually need each other with this. And I think that um, part of this, so an intergenerational church certainly helps, but even if it's not an intergenerational, you know, illness and um, connecting with the community and where there's illness and death and mortality, like we we actually need this in a sense for our sanctification. Um, and in the midst of that, people who are ill have something to offer. And that's something I think that's often overlooked. I've been in a lot of Christian contexts where whenever someone is ill and in the hospital, basically there's just the single prayer, which is we pray that they get out. And I'm not, got to protest it's not like a prayer police or something like it's not like that prayer is malicious or something but as somebody who's been in the hospital a lot and been prayed for a lot it does get tiring because you're not just like an object who needs to get out of the hospital before you live your Christian life. This is something where the earlier Christian prayers are so insightful they they, they pray for the person who is sick, that they have patience, that they have hope, that they be a witness to the gospel. And the people who are dying and are struggling with illness of whatever sort, whether it's, you know, terminal or not, they are actually called to be witnesses to the gospel. And I don't mean that as a burden to them, but actually as a humanizing thing. They're part of the body of Christ. And if we, when we visit someone who is dying, I think when we do it in a patient way, just to be present with them, maybe read a psalm, be present with them, we can also see kind of a mirror of our own mortality there. And in a similar way, that can happen with someone who is ill. And that can give much more genuine empathy. Um, not just like, I know how you're feeling. Actually, you don't have the foggiest idea how I'm feeling, you know, but if, if, if there's this, if there's a more um, patient presence where they don't just see the sick person as somebody they need to comfort. And so then they can go on and get ready, go on with their lives. But the sick person actually has something they need to hear to or receive to, sorry, the the person visiting the sick person from the sick person. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, it reminds me, I was on staff at a homeless shelter for five years. And I remember um, one of my homeless guests saying, um, I saw him on the subway and he said, I was just at church and they were praying for the homeless. And he paused and then he said, I decided I was going to start praying for the housed. Um, and there's something about that that mm. has stuck with me. It actually is similar, I think, with 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 illness. Um, um, so, uh, you know, of course, I, I mean, I have other advice too. Of course, if it's deep grieving, listen first. Be like Job's friends at the first. They just sat. And listened with his friends don't come in with all sorts of advice or you know cool theology it's like theology you think is cool um, uh, you know I my default is to go to the Psalms if you have something yeah. to say um, every it's an anatomy of the human soul as Calvin says every emotion is there brought before the presence of God um, and um, I, I do have like an article as well with, from a few years ago, but I think it's open access with Christianity Day on sort of how to approach them with the terminal illness in particular, um, and some sets of set of advice there, but, um, Thank you. but it's, it requires kind of a culture change and I think, but an opportunity I think for discipleship in the midst of that.
1: Yeah. I think your point about being patient is, you know, really something we should think about, you know, as a young pastor, you know, I feel like I always want to have the right thing to say when I, you know, go visit someone. And, um, you know, the elder pastor here at our church, he's reminded me a number of times um, that, you know, nine times out of 10, they're not even going to remember what you say. They're just going to remember that you're there. So just sitting and being with them is the most important thing. And your point about the health of the body, the body being together um, during these times is just such a A good reminder for us. Uh, Before we let you go, I I did want to ask you, um, obviously, as we've already done, we want to recommend your book and and point uh, listeners there, but do you have any other resources that you've found particularly helpful in processing death? Or maybe also, I I know we've discussed the Psalms and you lean heavily on the Psalms in this book, any favorite um, resources that are related to the Psalms that maybe our listeners would find useful?
2: There's a lot of good books for different purposes, but one I've been mentioning to folks recently is a really good book if you're thinking about the end of life in as a discrete time. As I mentioned, my book is about a much broader canvas than that, but there are some things to think through if you have a family member or if you yourself are coming to what you anticipate the end of life is, and how do you think through medical intervention? And there's a really excellent book that just came out last year by Lydia Duckdale, who is a committed Christian and a physician and professor at Columbia in New York City, and it's called *The Lost Art of Dying*. And she's been present with hundreds of people as they have died, and in so many situations, if they would have done some advanced planning, you might say, some thought with family, um, um, that process would have gone a lot better. And so I don't go into just the sort of checklist of what one should do in my book. Um, but she goes through that checklist, but also in a very fulsome way. She draws upon the Christian tradition of the art of dying um, that especially the one she draws upon is one that developed among Christians in light of the bubonic plague Um, and just some deep wisdom there. And um, yeah. So, and, and then another, one of my favorite books, if you want to talk about even the virtues that dying Christian traditions can cultivate in dying is just called "Dying and the Virtues" by my friend Matthew Levering. Um, he's Roman Catholic, um, but very biblical in in many ways. So you know, of course, there's a few there's some points in there that I don't completely agree with him on, but overall, it's a very rich um, um, vision of of dying. Where the thing is, so often we just think about you know, I'm not going to think about dying, almost as if it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> I'm just going to do everything to keep it from happening. But the fact is, all of us are dying. And so, this is a way of um, really going into some of the virtues of hope and of patience and some of the things that I've even mentioned that historically Christians have prayed for sick people. Um, to have to display these virtues and have helped them to display these person virtues. And, but now so often we just pray, get him out of the hospital, you know? (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's a nice alternative. That's more fulsome um, there. Um, And then there, if, if you're pretty new to even just the whole question of dying and medicine, There's a book um, by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. He's not a Christian, but he's actually quite sympathetic to the Christian tradition at points in the book. But he, as a physician, just gives a pretty astonishing overview of um, how things have changed in in that way. Um, So, I mean, on lament... um, i mean i have my book on um rejoicing and lament um, I, Bonhoeffer's book on the psalms um, is really wonderful um, there's a, a number of there's a number of resources that have been helpful i'd actually have to look at my bookshelf to um, see which one my favorite would be so
0: yeah, that is. And uh, I want to mention before we close up that I, your book, you mentioned in the beginning, the, the word of God for the people of God. Uh, that was one of those game-changing shift books for me. Oh, wow. I remember I was in, um, I think it was a Greek exegesis of Matthew with with Jonathan Pennington. Oh, yeah. And he commended your book. And I was, I was really struggling with just hermeneutics in general. So I picked it up and I read it and it was just fabulous. Uh, so, I, I want to make sure that if you're listening to this, you go get a copy of that one too, because uh, I found that one very, very helpful. And also your Union with Christ book, short, simple, uh, another book that I think is very digestible, very good for church use. Uh, when my previous church, when I was in Louisville, we used it with a group of younger guys and everybody ate it up and it was, it was really good. So, Thank you for your labors and all of these things and not just this book. Uh, I know I've benefited from them uh, benefited from them. And I also know for those who are interested in following you you've got a Twitter and you've got this really fresh looking website as well. com. Do you have any other places that people can follow your work or are those the two key locations they probably want to go?
2: I have an author page on Facebook they don't do a lot with that, but if I have new articles or things, I will highlight those there.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Well, we commend all of that to you. I think what you're doing is just fantastic and it's really, really benefiting the the church at large. Uh, I mean, I just know reading through the book, there were so many times I'm thinking this is beneficial to me, but also beneficial to the family members that are experiencing different things right now. That is really, really helpful to them. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us. This has been a delightful conversation. And uh, for all that have been listening, check out his stuff. And you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.